Hey, this is Jen, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Yeah, there it is. Hi, my name is Caesar. I am the Young Adults Director here. Is it anybody's first time? Want to raise your hand real quick? Okay, well, that's right. You know, I'm not, we're not going like, to make you get up or anything. Uh, welcome. We'd love uh, for you to join our family if you're just checking out church. Uh, we'd love for you to join Mosaic and Adults, that join Mosaic, that you are part of this family. Um, and yes, yeah, so we do love Jesus here, and we seek him uh, diligently as a community and as a family. Uh, before I open up God's word, um, there is somebody's birthday that I missed, uh, Ryan Ramsey. Yeah. Yep, yep. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to call you up. That's all right. Yeah, I'm not calling you up. I'm calling you out. It's different. It's different. Uh, any other birthdays this week that I'm missing? Anybody else's birthday? Look at that. All right. Well, happy birthday. I hope that we can celebrate with you this week. Maybe tonight. Maybe someone can buy you Twisty, twisty Treat. Uh, Ryan was like, yes. I know you want it. Yep, you want it. All right. So uh, it is now up to us to now use our resources to celebrate them. So take them out to Chili's. Take them out to Twisty Treat. Um, do as family does. Uh, tonight's main text will be in Ephesians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles in the back, those beautiful baby blues. Uh, I'll give you like what 10 to 15 seconds to go get one. And if not, you can open up your Bible app, or if you have your own Bibles, uh, we will be in Ephesians chapter 5. I will be reading out of the ESV text, but you're welcome to use any translation that you feel most comfortable with. Ephesians chapter 5. All right, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to uh, 30. I promise I know what I'm doing. Uh, Yes, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. And the word of the Lord says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his flesh, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, humbly and expectant. We desire for you to speak to us. In fact, we, des- we need you to speak to us. That's why we come here. We come not to fulfill our own desires and our own passions. We don't come here to exalt ourselves, but we come here to hear from you and from you alone, Lord, for we need your direction and guidance in this world. We need you to work in our hearts and our minds to redirect and reform our very inner being, but can only be done by the work of your spirit. So we come here simply in humility and saying, Lord, do what you need to do in our hearts. Do it in the way that you need to do it, whether it be in community, whether it be through the preaching of your word, whether it be in exhortation or in discipline, whatever it might be, Lord, would you work in us today because we need it. We need you desperately, not just before and not just in the future, but in this very moment, for every second of every moment of our lives, we need your presence. 
So Lord, open our hearts, open our minds to receive the teaching of your word. Would my own words, Father, would it be drenched in your spirit? May your spirit speak through me. May I be simply a vessel of your word. May I be a container of your truth and you alone. May I present you correctly and may I exalt you and you alone. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I am excited to be with you all tonight. We're going to be starting a new sermon series called uh, Here Comes the Bride. Now despite the text we just read and the title of this series, this will not be a sermon series on dating. Sorry y'all, this is not on singleness or how to get from single to married. That's not what this is about. But it is about marriage. It is about a bride. It's just not maybe in the way that you might have thought when I first said it. Uh, but I don't want to give too much away. Let me just give a little bit of context and then we'll dive in with the rest of the message. Over the last few months, the young adult team and I were discussing and praying about what the Lord wanted for us to bring to our community. And we recognized that it wasn't just our young adults, but it was just Christians across the board struggled to see the beauty of the church. And I mean that both in the global and the local sense, the capital C church that is found in every continent and every uh, uh, orifice of this, of this world and the local church, the lower C church like Mosaic or LifeBridge or Real Life or First Baptist, wherever it might be. And that's why last week we intentionally made a panel discussing, if, who was there last week for the panel, anybody? A, a good chunk of you all, and you all, if you were there, you'll remember, and if not, you'll know that it was discussing the relationship between the church and the believer. And that's the main reason why we're doing this sermon series, because I believe there's a need for us to understand what the relationship ought to be between a believer of Jesus and his church. And so as I was prepping for this message, I was reading this article talking about the local church, and this author pointed out that something very interesting that, that convicted me as I read it, um, because it is true of me, and I'm sure it might be true of some of us in this place, is that instead of loving the church of Christ, we have been so enveloped by the church of the mirror. And so what does that mean? Well, what does a mirror do? Right? It shows you everything that you are, whether it's pretty or not pretty. And it reflects you and only what you want the mirror to see. So you only see what you are willing to put in front of the mirror. But that's not what Jesus desires for his people. He doesn't want us to love the church of the mirror. He wants you to love his church, the church of Christ. Because when we seek and desire only the church of the mirror, or if we're not only seeking the church of Christ, then we end up going to churches that have people that look just like me or just like you, and have all the preferences that we want. Or even worse, we'll go to one church for one thing, and we'll go to this church for this thing, and we'll go to this church for this thing, and suddenly you are a pseudo-member of five different churches, and you're not actually a real member of any of them. And we begin to see Christ's church, unfortunately, as a place that serves and entertains us. And we use it for our own good pleasure instead of interacting it interacting with it in the way that Christ has designed for us to interact with it with. This is what the author said in his article about the local church. He says, there is little, precious little humility in the church of the mirror. There is very little asking, little listening, little understanding, and even less forgiveness. Because when the church of the mirror spins on the access of me, my needs, my wants, my preferences, and all my important opinions, 
there is little room for anybody else, especially someone who doesn't agree with the views represented in my mirror because those views are deeper than they appear. So what then is the remedy to this issue? Well, go find another church. No, that's not it. That is not what I'm, I'm, I'm in charging with us, us with, and I don't think that's what God wants for us. The remedy for this is not to find another church to call home or, in fact, to build a church of your own design, but it's to rightly see what the church of Christ is. Because the church of Christ is more than just a building. I mean, we've seen that throughout 2020, right? Because we weren't even able to meet for most of last year. But yet the church still was in existence, correct? So it's more than just a building, and it's more than just a denomination, and it's more than just an organization and grouping of people. This is what the church of Christ is. The church of Christ, if you want to put this down on paper, are the believers and disciples of Jesus who God has purchased with the blood of Christ and has redeemed them in order to call them sons and daughters. This is the church of Christ. I would wonder, does that change your view of how you see the church? I wonder if it would change the way I view the church of Christ. Because what I just told you, the definition I gave you, this is the church that Christ loves. And if he loves the church and he loves his church, then I would like us tonight to consider how that shifts the way we see the church today and our relationship to it. Because there are many reasons why the Bible says why Christ loves the church, but for tonight's purposes, I will only touch upon three of them. If you are the note-taking type, and I can see some of you are, and, and honestly, I was praying about this. I didn't know if I was going to say this or not. I really hope that we become a note-taking kind of people. Uh, because if you are expecting for God to speak to you, don't you want to look back to what he said to you? Right? So I, I would encourage you, uh, you may not like journaling, you may not writing, but if you can buy a $5 notebook at, at Dollar General or whatnot and a little pen, I, I would encourage you to do so. Come to this place expecting for God to speak to you because his word is opened and, desire, and he desires to speak to you and it would be good for us to look back onto what he says. So if you are the note-taking type, the three reasons tonight that we're talking about why Christ loves the church is because one, Christ loves the church because we are his bride. Two, Christ loves the church because we are his body. And three, Christ loves the church because we are his plan of salvation for the world. So let's jump back into the text for tonight, Ephesians 5. Just, we'll just read the first verse again together. Uh, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So right off the bat, so we're going to stay there for now. Right off the bat, we see the Apostle Paul creating this picture of marriage. What he's saying here is that the way a husband and a wife are to look in marriage is, the, is for us to understand how Christ views his relationship with the church. So this past June, I recently got married uh, to my best friend and to my wife, to my bride, who's now more than my bride, yes. Um, cool, cool. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. And I spent some time recently reflecting on the beauty of that day because it was quite a whirlwind of a day. Um, but up to this point, it is certainly the best day of my life. And what I remember most about that day was how anxious I was. 
And because, yes, I was about to make the biggest commitment I've ever made in my entire life to be with one person forever. But that isn't what made me anxious because it wasn't nerves and it wasn't regret and it wasn't fear. I knew undoubtedly that this was the person I was meant to marry. What I was anxious is because I desperately longed to see my bride. Because I knew without a shadow of a doubt that she would be beautiful that she would be glorious, that she would be radiant. And I wanted to finally become one with the one that my heart longed for. Now, this doesn't mean that the rest of the day wasn't important or beautiful, because it was. The rest of that, my wedding day as a whole was great. I loved the time that I got to spend finalizing my vows because I took too much time and procrastinated and wrote them mostly on that day. And I... (laughs) Literally was writing it as I was getting ready and my hand started cramping and I had to have my best man start writing it. So we have a little vow, we have a little vow book and, and Rachel, if now you know why the second page doesn't look like my handwriting, it's because <laughs> Kevin wrote some of it for me. Not wrote it for me, I told him what to say. He was my scribe. I told him what to write. I, I loved the time that I got to spend with my groomsmen um, as they laughed about my procrastination. I, I loved the food and I loved the dancing. I loved uh, being able to put on the suit and, and to look at the ring that I would be putting on. And, and I loved getting the pictures done even despite it was super hot and it was gross a little bit. And I, I did love it all. But n- despite all the beautiful parts of the day, the only thing I could really think about and my heart and my mind was focused on was that I was going to see Rachel, my bride. And then the ceremony started. And everybody walks in and we're there and then the door opens and as is fitting for all the weddings, all people rise and all their eyes look at the bride coming down. And I couldn't help but cry because there was Rachel, my bride, just as beautiful as I had just seen her a couple minutes ago because we'd done a first look, but she was just <laughs> as beautiful as I had seen her not too long ago. And some would even go to say that she was the definition of perfection. And if none of you, I will say she is the definition of beautiful and perfect and radiant. And everyone laughed because I was crying, and, but they were also smiling. There wasn't a single person that I saw in that room that wasn't smiling because without a shadow of a doubt, they knew the love between the groom and the bride was real. And this is what Paul is trying to get across to us. That the heart and mind of Christ is so focused on his bride. And that bride is the church. But we have to keep in mind here, though, is that the marriage that we see on earth this, no matter how beautiful I might think or you may think the relationship between Rachel and I as husband and wife may be, it is only a fraction of the godly love that Christ shares with his bride. I may say I love Rachel, but Christ loves the church even more. Because look at what the second half of verse 25 says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This family is the greatest demonstration of love that he could show to the bride. This was the most beautiful and ultimate vow that Christ could make. The initial, essentially saying that he would go to any lengths to be with his bride. This is how committed Jesus is to his church. It's not that he's just willing to marry it, but that he has proven his love by dying for it. 
Now, as beautiful as this picture may be, there may be a big part of you that says, well, why in the world would Jesus love this thing? Why would Jesus love the church? Because if you've done any church history reading, you'll know we messed up quite a bit. Crusades, anybody? <laughs> and even beyond that, I mean, look at the church during, during you know, the Civil War and, all, and, and during the time of slavery. The church was not. Well, it did some good there. It also perpetuated a lot of bad. Like, the church doesn't have the greatest track record all the time. Jesus, are you sure the church is the one that you love? And maybe you're here and you're saying, man, like, I've just been hurt by the church time and time again. And it's quite a miracle that I'm even here on a Thursday night, but someone convinced me to come because they said they had good snacks and drinks. And I said, why not? Free stuff on a Thursday. Why would Jesus love this thing? And what I would love to say to you tonight is that just because Christ loves the church does not make it perfect. But Jesus still calls us to love his bride. You see, there's a temptation that's been going brewing for decades, but has become more and more prevalent in our day. And it's the development of the ideology, ideology that says, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. I love Jesus, but I am not a fan of his, of his Christians. And I would strongly warn you about this belief, because the truth of it is, is that you cannot have Jesus without his church. And you cannot have Jesus' church without its Savior. Because Jesus sees himself and the church as one. And when we dissociate the two, when we separate Christ and his church and his bride, then we again run to build the church of the mirror and create a vision of the church that is really extremely unhealthy. And it's part of the reason why we're in this mess. Uh, there's one of my favorite authors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have you ever heard of him? He's a German theologian and uh, was a German theologian, and he wrote this book called Life Together. It's a rather small book, about 130 pages-ish. Um, you can read it in a day if you really wanted to. And while it's a small book, it is a book full of truth, biblical truth. And so Bonhoeffer wrote this during World War II um, in the height of, of Hitler's reign, and uh, Christians were being persecuted at this time. And so he had created this seminary underground because he wanted the church to continue. He believed the Church of Christ was worth dying for. And so he created this, this document together to teach his students about what the true, beautiful image of the church should look like. But in this beautiful text, he gives a warning to them about the church that we are tempted to create for ourselves. And so I'm going to read it here for us. This is what he says. Every human wish, dream, that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves, hear this, he or she who loves their dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the Christian community, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. This part killed me. God hates, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man or woman who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters this community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own laws, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. Have we not done this ourselves? 
We come into a young adult ministry, we come into a church, we come into a space that communes together under the name of God, but we come in with our demands of what makes a church good and maybe cool and edgy and, and, and awesome, and, and, and we start loving the idea of what the healthy church should look like more than the church God has placed us in. And when people fail, because we all fail each other at some point because we're humans, we fail to meet our preferential standards, we then get mad at one another. Well, why aren't you doing what I told you to do? As if though you were God. Why aren't you doing the things that I said you should be doing? And why don't you know what I'm thinking? And then we begin to hate one another and get angry at each other and vilify the bride of Christ because we love our vision for the church more than we love Christ's vision for his church. You see, what made the early church 2,000 years ago so stinking beautiful and attractive was how inviting it was and how patient it was. Because the church of Christ and, and what it's meant to be, but what it for sure was, even though it was broken and flawed because it had broken and flawed people, it was full of Jews and Gentiles, two people who hated each other and had culture and reason to hate each other, but came together in love under Christ it welcomed the educated and the uneducated. It invited the, the virgin and the prostitute. It invited the sick and the healthy and the rich and the poor. It did not matter what your skin color was. It didn't matter what education level or what language you spoke. It simply said, you are welcome to meet with the lover of your soul, Jesus Christ. That's what made the church so beautiful. And in fact, that is what our church, the church today of 2021, this is what the bride of Christ today ought to look like. Instead of us cherishing, cherishing all the types of people that God invites, we are so quick to make them fit our desired vision for them and thus killing what God seeks to do in them. But now what I'm not saying is that God lets us just stay as we are. He invites, he calls, and he welcomes, and then he begins to work and change us and transform us and will continually call us to leave the sin that we knew behind and teach us how to yearn for his word and his spirit because we are his bride. No groom wants a bride that doesn't love them and them alone. Christ did not give himself up for the bride we think it should be. He died for the church that the Father gifted him with. Because the church 2,000 years ago and the church today and all in between was and is and will always be a gift. You may not think it, you may not see it, and you may have struggles to believe it, but that is God's intention for the church to be a gift to this world and to Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't critique the church because in healthy dosage, we need to because we need to care for the bride of Christ. And that means that there are times we need to reanalyze re and reorient the direction of the church. But what this ultimately means is that we cannot seek to destroy what Christ intends to marry by defiling it with our condemning words. Today, the, the church is not perfect. I'll admit it. But I also have to confess that it will be perfect. Christ promises as much. Look, let's move on after verse 25. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of the water with the word, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself, that he may marry this beautiful bride in splendor, without spot 
or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. See, Christ gives himself up for the church because, yes, it is his bride, but because it is his body. He does not just see the church as his bride, but as himself. Acts 9, if you've ever read this passage, we'll see that uh, the apostle Paul, what then was just a persecutor, he had gone out as a, as a Pharisee and as a rabbi and went after the Christian church, the early church, and he appointed people to kill and persecute and find Christians so that he would put an end to them. And Jesus saw this as a direct attack on himself. He says this in, I think it's verse 9, I forget, but it's in, chapter, in Acts chapter 9. And he goes to Paul and Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting the church? No. Why are you persecuting Christians? No. Why are you persecuting the poor? No. Why are you persecuting me? Because Paul up to that point had been seeking out and killing Christians. And Jesus saw this as an attack on himself because Jesus loves the church to the point where he sees it as his own body. And the funny thing is, is that the same Paul that we see in Acts chapter 9 is the same Paul that's writing this book of Ephesians. And he's making this strong appeal to the church of Ephesus and to us that we should think much of the church of Christ, that we should think much of the bride of Christ, that we should think much of the body of Christ. And that we should entrust the body of Christ to Jesus alone. Because the body of Christ, Jesus cares for it. Because we are one with him, as it says. The church is not perfect. I know. I hear you. I understand. I too have been affected by the flaws and brokenness of the church. But as I read this, I am encouraged and reminded and exhorted that this church will be perfect. This community someday will be all that God has set it out to be. Jesus is set on it because he loves it. And so he will sanctify it and cleanse it. And he will nourish it and cherish it. And how does he do this? I'm going to take us really quickly to John chapter 17. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's called the high priestly prayer. Uh, but in my account, it is, this is the real Lord's prayer. Because um, in Matthew 6, there's a Lord's Prayer about the template. But this is the real prayer that the Lord had made on behalf of his church. We're not going to read all of it because um, it's a lot. And we'll get to it eventually once we get through the book of John. Um, who knows? Next year. And he makes this, a, he makes this prayer on, to the Father on the behalf of the church. And we'll start in verse 9. Jesus is saying, I am praying for the church. I am not praying for the world. It's crazy. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you, Father, have given me, for, the, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Excuse me. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction being Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may themselves have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
So as we see here, again, the Father has gifted the church to whom? To Jesus as the bride. And he knows, Jesus knows that it will be difficult for the church in this world. That as long as he is in heaven, as long as we are in this world, as long as the church is not in the kingdom of God, this will be a difficult journey for the church and for the people of God. And so he, pray, he, he knows that the, if, they hate, if the world hated Jesus, they will hate the church. So Jesus prays for his church, as, he, as you see here. He prays and, and goes on our behalf to the Father. And he nourishes us with his word. He cherishes us by placing his Holy Spirit into us and placing godly leaders in our churches to guide his people. He says here he guards the church. More than that, he desires joy and goodness for his church. He desires for the church to be one as the Father and the Son are one. Jesus is so set on caring for the church and making it perfect. This is the vision that Christ has for his church, his bride, his body. And it is greater than any vision you and I can create for ourselves or for the church. The church of the mirror has no place in the church of Christ. And you might be thinking, okay, listen, this is awesome. It is. But some of you here tonight might be thinking, there is no way I can be part of something so beautiful. I mean, Caesar, my life is so full of sin. It is so dirty. Like, I am not, I don't even want to say the things that I've seen and and say the things that I've done, but I need to remind you, if that is you tonight, Jesus started the early church with men just, men and women just like you and me. He took broken and degenerate people and made them whole in himself. I love how Ephesians 2, I mean, really, the whole freaking Ephesians is amazing. But Ephesians chapter 2 says that, hey, can we cut that out? Like, freaking, I can't say that. I just realized, I, you know, it's fine. Never mind. Anyway, Ephesians 2 says that God took people that were strangers and aliens and brought them into the house of God by the blood of Christ. And by aliens, I mean sojourners, not extraterrestrials. Like, if that's, if that's what you're thinking, it's not. Okay, it continues to say that Jesus is our peace. And that Christ has unified all of his people to one another and to himself. That Jesus is our peace. Jesus is not unaware of your sin, of your sin and my sin and our brokenness. That's why he makes this prayer in John 17, because he knows our brokenness and he knows our problems and our tribulations and our temptations. He knows and he prays for us and he guards us and he will cleanse you. Here's one thing that I could never believe until I read this text. There will be a day where you and I will be perfect along with the rest of the body of Christ. Like, I need you to think about this for a moment. Just think about it. Think about what your life looks like right now. How many of you would say it's about 75% good? Raise a hand. 75%. 85 percent good would any of you say that 100 percent of your life is good okay michael i know it's always you i'm glad but even for you michael with 100 percent it pales in comparison to what will be when there will be a day where there will be no more jealousy there will be no more brokenness there will be no more mondays 
No more Wednesday hump days. There will never be the fear of, will I be able to amount to anything? There will be never anxiousness or depression. There will never be temptation and addiction. You will be perfect along with the bride of Christ. That will be our future. But you do not have to wait for that day to experience some of the promise today. You see, the verb form here in the Greek for the words in Ephesians chapter 5, for nourish and cherish and cleansing and sanctifying, it is set for the English nerds, the verbs are in the present and active participle, which means it is in this moment that Jesus is nourishing you. It is in this second that he is cherishing you. It is in this moment that he is sanctifying you. It is in this moment that he is cleaning you. It is in this moment that your sin has no victory over you. And if you think that your sin will conquer you, just know that he is actively working for you because we are his. Listen, if you think you hate your sin, Jesus hates it even more and is set to help you rid of it from your life. But he's saying this not just to us as individuals, but he's saying it to the church collectively today. That the church will be nourished and cherished and loved. And Christ is calling us to love and cherish the bride and the body because it's who we are. He's made us collectively together as his bride and his body so that we may know him. May I ask you, may I invite you, do you want to know your groom? Do you want to know the one who longs for you and waits for you and is waiting for the day where he marries you? Because how is it that Paul in Acts 9, the persecutor, becomes Paul the church planter in Ephesians? It's because he met his groom, Jesus. And in knowing his groom, he wanted everybody to know the one that he was going to marry. And that is what we are called to do. We are part of this grand mission to not just marry Christ, but to invite all to the wedding feast. This is God's intention for us. It's not that only Christ is longing to see his bride, but we have to continually ask ourselves, are we longing to be with Christ? Or what, what are we doing until the, the day of our wedding with him comes? Are all our thoughts and affections pointed towards Christ? Are we fixating? Are we even obsessed with Christ? Because while we await that wedding day, the Lord does have a mission for his bride. Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll end in this point. I lied. This is the second to last verse, but it's, we're almost done. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, I'll read for us if you don't get there. Paul saying to me, Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, you hear that? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the apostles of Jesus, not just Paul, but the apostles were all fixated on presenting the church to Christ in all its splendor. And Paul's mission here. He was taught, as he says, I was taught as the lowly of these to preach the riches and the beauty of the gospel. And we are called to do the same. The church is also, just like Paul, called to be the very least of all the saints. Our humility is what the world should know us for. We are called to proclaim to everyone the salvation that is in Christ. 
that he has come to save sinners and make them saints in his kingdom, that he has come to be with his people for eternity. He calls the church to be a light in a world of darkness and to push back the kingdom of darkness. This is what the church is tasked with doing because you and I are God's, are God's plan A and there is no plan B. You, you are God's plan A. Not for tomorrow, but as verse 10 says, for right now. Yes. Let me tell you, the church is messy and it's for sure jacked up. Yes, we've been wrong and we will be wrong again. But our imperfection does not rob Jesus of his perfection. He is the cornerstone of the church. And not only does he purify us, but he secures us in our mission of gospel proclamation. We are his plan A, and you don't have to wait any longer. This is our mission. But you might think, there's no way we can accomplish this. I mean, we've just been messing up time and time again. But this is what Matthew 18 says. I'm just going all the places here. Matthew 18. Jesus is having a conversation with probably the most hard-headed of all the disciples. Peter. Sorry, Matthew 16, 18. I lied. I'm about to send you on a whole different thing. Matthew 16, 18. This is what Jesus says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church will not be stopped. Okay? This is what this means. The church, in its mission, in all its glory, will never fail its mission. There is nothing, not even the powers of evil and hell, will never prevail it. But this is not because Peter is awesome. Yes, the Greek for Peter's name is rock, and so many people have thought this to mean that, it's, that, that this is why there's a pope, and it's based on the, po- uh, the papacy of, of, of Peter, this is why we have the pope, and no, no, no. That's not what this means. Look what he says again. On this rock I will build my church. But he had just asked Peter a very pointed question a couple verses back. He was asking his disciples first, who do you say the son of man is? Some people said, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, this person, Isaiah. He goes, okay, fine, that's what they say. Who do you say I am? And then Peter, the one time that he blurts something out in his right, he says, you are the son of God. You are Christ, the son of the living God, verse 16. And then he says, Jesus, you, on this rock, on the proclamation of who I am, Peter is not the rock. His testimony of who Christ is, is the rock. Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the one and true son of the living God. That is why the church will never fail. Not because of you and me, but because of him. This is the mission that we would make much of our groom. That we would focus all our desires, all our affection towards the one who longs to be with us. 
that we would tell everybody day in and night out of our groom to invite everyone who would be willing to hear that you are invited into the wedding feast. This is the end goal of the church. This is what we do as we await our wedding day, that we will tell everyone that there is a day coming, a wedding beyond all that you can imagine that is to come between Christ and his people. So I'm gonna take you to one passage and left, and that's it, and we're done. Very last book of the Bible, Revelation. Chapter 19. Some of this might, some of yours might say the supper of the lamb in the church. Mine says here rejoicing in heaven. And so one of the apostles, John, had been given a vision and he was able to hear and see all the things that would come to be. Uh, some of these are events, and personally, I think some of these events have happened, but this part, I can all agree with all theologians that it has not yet come. Chapter 19. After this, I, John, heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. If any of you have ever been to a sporting event, you know, maybe you've gone to a Gators game or a Seminoles game, like whatever, I don't care. Y'all can fight each other who's better. But if y'all been to a big sporting event, y'all, there's a, there's a moment where you're in the home field. It doesn't matter how bad your team is, but there's this moment where there's the chant of the crowd and it literally becomes deafening. But all you can make out is whatever the chant is. That's all you can hear. Nothing else is heard. This is the chance of God's people crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and judged. I lied. I read the beginning of this. Wait, hold on. Verse 5. It's okay. It's okay. Wait, why am I not in the right place? No, we don't want me to read this next part because that's not right. What is going on? There is no way this is happening. This is really embarrassing. I totally had it right. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of what great multitude, like the roar of many waters and, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Again, this is the chant. Hallelujah! <laughs> For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb who is Christ has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Everyone, the, the, the bride of Christ, unlike me, and imperfectly reading this, will be perfect. The bride will be perfect. And the body of Christ will be at this wedding feast after all history is said and done. And anyone who is in Christ will not have to sneak in through the back and hope they'll get an invitation by the person who got second invite and then like, can I bring my boyfriend? Like, no, this is not that. There's no sneaking in. This will be, everyone who is meant to be there will be there. And they will be part of this joyous feast and occasion. And we all will be perfected in Christ. Think of this today, church. 
that there will be a day that we cannot fully imagine in this moment, but it will be again a day where sin is no longer present and no more pain, no more anxieties. All tears will be wiped away. This is what is awaiting us, church, family. Until that day comes, may we occupy our lives with getting ready for our wedding day. Would we get to know our groom? Would we love the church as he does? Will we, as the church, as mosaic and adults, practice regularly today? We'll have to wait, but today, what we will be doing for all eternity. That along with the church that was, and the church that is, and the church that will be, that in one beautiful symphony of praise, we will sing in joyous occasion, hallelujah, the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Christ loves the church, and so should we, for we in Christ are one. I'd encourage you to spend this next week praying and really, not even just this week beyond, but praying and asking the Spirit of God, how can we together learn how to better love the church? Ask your leaders. Have these conversations with your pastors. Ask one another what it means to love the church well. Next week, we'll continue the sermon series and talk about how we are to love the church, but you don't have to wait then to learn. Ask the groom, and he will happily show you. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, for you reign, not just in Revelation chapter nine, but from Genesis one to the ending of Revelation, you reign supreme. You always have. You've always loved your people, from Adam and Eve to the very last person. You've loved your people. God, I ask that you would teach us, teach us so well how to love and care for your bride. May we fall in love with the church May your love for the church be so palpitating, may be so infectious, may be so beautiful that we would remember that despite how much wrong has happened within the walls of the church, that your vision for it is far greater than it, that the work of the enemy has no place, that our vision for the church is not the one that you died for, but the vision of your church is the one that you gave yourself up for. May we remember that we are sanctified along with everyone else. May we remember who we are in you as the church. May we remember that we don't have to wait till the wedding feast to experience some of the beautiful promises you have. Spirit of God, teach us. Open our minds, open our hearts to receive all that you have for your people. May we love the bride as you love it. May we be ready for the day that you come for us. And may that be the best day of all our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use the message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.